You're listening to a special Q&A episode with questions from you, the listeners of the Moonshine Murder and Mayhem podcast. I want to thank everyone for listening, sharing, rating, and reviewing the podcast. Every one of you has made this project much more than I could have imagined it to be. I especially owe gratitude to my wife, Brianna. She has edited every script of every episode. She reviews the episodes before they are sent out to be mixed and mastered. She even does the intro voiceover for every episode. Next, Michael, my brother-in-law, he does the voiceover for all the newspaper articles, quotes, and blog posts. He records all this on the fly and does such a great and professional job. A special shout-out to Brandon Hillis, one of my best friends who was in the last episode. I run all of my ideas and theories by him before they even get off the ground. He encouraged me to even get this project going. Lastly, thank you so much also to everyone whom I've interviewed for their time and patience. Ryan asks... How did you get this started? What made you want to do it? I've wanted to get into podcasting for a long time, but a project of this magnitude just seemed out of reach. Ever since I heard the Up and Vanish podcast, I became intrigued with its style, and I wanted to do my own. Up and Vanish was a homegrown Georgia podcast that was about the disappearance of a beauty pageant turned teacher. They actually got people reinvestigated in this cold case and it helped lead to arrest of the perpetrators. My first thought was that I needed to find my own jumping point. This is where the Sleep Nation Station podcast comes into play. Working on that music podcast helped me to work out the bugs and the kinks of creating a show. I was also able to interview some really cool musicians. Of course, this is an entirely different style of podcast, but it gave me the confidence and comfortability to take it to the next step. See, I stumble over my words periodically and just wanted to take some seat time before I got into a more serious project. After I built up my skills, I needed to find my story. About five years ago, my granny told me the story about Slim, and it captured me. I have a stake in this story because it's about my family. I'm connected to it by blood, as the last episode title suggests. One epiphany that has come from this episode is how essential it is to learn about your roots. You kind of look at life a little differently when you look back at your family's past. All those stories that you don't really pay attention to when you're a kid, they become very near and dear to your heart as you get older. And the people who told those stories aren't there anymore to keep it going. Your family history doesn't have to involve murder but you get connected with people you never knew. Though you can come to feel like you knew them in another life, there is a belief that you can spiritually connect with and contact your ancestors. I may not necessarily believe this, but I do believe something or someone has been guiding this investigation. I can't really explain it or comprehend it, but there have been way too many strange occurrences happening. What made me want to do it? I'm a creative person. I have been ever since I was young. I'm also a stubborn person. Once I get invested in a project, it takes me over, and I have to see it through to the end. 
But most of all, and most importantly, I want answers for my pa dude who is no longer with us. And I, I just can't imagine growing up not knowing your father and your mother abandoning you at the age of four. A question from our Facebook Live event. How has your opinion of what happened to Slim changed, if at all? I feel more involved in the emotion of how my family could have felt during all this. It's like uncovering a wound that has been buried for a long time. I know I can't really know how they felt, but looking at the same documents and relics of your ancestors is a very moving experience. I encourage everyone to do this. It's humbling to get in touch with your roots. I don't believe my opinion of what happened to Slim has changed. I just feel more involved. These people I only once heard about in passing have become absolutely real and tangible. It's not just a story anymore. It happened to real people during an extremely trying time. Slim was clearly involved in a legal business. Some would say that it was immoral to be involved with transporting liquor, illegal liquor at that. I don't necessarily see things that way. The older I get, I can see all sides. Just because people legislate a law doesn't make it morally right or wrong. You can't legislate morality. This is fully realized when my wife and I went to Gatlinburg, where moonshine was paraded around with no care whatsoever. But my great-grandfather died because of it. My pa dude told me something one day when it was just the two of us. He said, You know why people usually get into a disagreement? It's usually because of money. Follow the money. Spending time in jail may have been a fair punishment, but destroying a life and a family as a punishment is beyond immoral. Allison asks, Do you have any access to police files 80 years ago? I haven't attempted to access local police records in Warren County, but I'm definitely not far off from investigating this. I will reveal my findings when I do. However, I have been in contact with a federal agency, and now I'm currently in the process of obtaining records that I believe are going to play a massive part in this entire investigation. I already have one declassified document in my possession as of right now. I'm not going to release any information just yet, not until I can verify that the document pertains to or is connected to Slim's death in any way. Can you get the license plate number of his taxi? Apparently during that time period, a license plate number stayed with the vehicle unlike today. I contacted the Department of Tennessee Records and they sent me to the local records which are located in the Warren County Administrative Building. I called them and they said records are destroyed after five years. A question from our Facebook Live event. Who raised your grandfather after she left? And when did she come back? My pa dude and his two brothers were raised by their grandparents, Oscar and Josie. My great-great-grandparents were in their mid-fifties. They took care of three young boys, all under the age of eight, and on a zero-dollar-a-year farmer's wage, according to a 1940 census. My pa dude was two when his father was killed and no more than five when his mother left town. Lillian never came back to Tennessee, ever. She passed away in Wisconsin. A question from our Facebook Live event. 
Do you think that the continuation of prohibition was motivated by the county's corrupt government? Yes, it very well could have been. There's really no telling how far the corruption went on in that county. Brandon clearly recalls learning from his family history that the revenuers and local law enforcement were corrupt. But as far as the rest of the politicians, I have no idea. I have an inclination that they were, but I'm not going to speculate. On a related note, I actually believe Slim would have wanted to keep Prohibition going. That's why he was on the Republican committee in Warren County. He wanted to keep Prohibition going in order to keep himself in high demand. The illegal nature of his business kept the profits high. Prohibition wasn't a moral crusade, as some would suggest. It was all about taxation. It gave them time to figure out how Uncle Sam could get his amidst the war and the Great Depression. These questions have been great. Gary asks, Was the building in Mont Eagle a halfway point between Florida and Chicago? Have you been there to research? Yes, the building known as High Point in Mont Eagle is a halfway point between Florida and Chicago. It's located on the Dixie Highway, known to be the highest point between those two locations. I've been to eat at the High Point restaurant, but at the time, I was not researching for this podcast. Unfortunately, COVID-19 has put a pause on all of my out-of-town research. As soon as everything clears up, you better believe I'll physically be there. In the meantime, I've been able to conduct a few interviews concerning this subject. A question from our Facebook Live event. Why did they call him Slim? My dad said that Slim was a reference to my great-grandfather's thin body structure and stature. How did Dude get his nickname? My pa Dude got his name from like a big tall dude, according to my Aunt Cappy, because he was a really big, just tall man. Bran, do you have a family nickname? My own family nickname? According to my dad, at least one of them was Batbran. My mother, Sabrina, who is no longer with us, once made me in an entire Batman costume outfitted with my own cape that said Batbran. Brett asks, Have you found the connection with Slim's taxi service between McMinnville and Mont Eagle? Uh, a, a little yes and no. I've got a grandiose theory that I am excited to reveal in the next episode. Charity asks, Any chance that the family of the sheriff who took Slim's cap would be willing to talk to you? I'm in the process of verifying actually who confiscated the vehicle. The sheriff was what my granny and my dad were told, but I'm investigating the validity of that information. When I do... Everyone will definitely hear it. Brandon asks, When you started this project, did you think you would end up on the path you're on now? I absolutely didn't know what to expect. I had no idea where I would be or what direction my research would take me. I'm not an investigator by any means. The subject matter of true crime is just something that has intrigued me more and more as I get older. I guess all those years watching Unsolved Mysteries is paying off. I'm extremely excited to know what awaits us all at the end of this journey. The next episode epitomizes the excitement and not knowing where an investigation will take you. By the way, guys, these questions have been great. A Facebook Live event question. When Lillian left, 
did the grandparents take care of them until they were adults? Yes, my great-great-grandparents cared for Sonny, Bud, and Dude up until they were adults and moved out of the house as adults. A question from our Facebook Live event. Have you been truly surprised by any one piece of information? The biggest surprise was being at the highest funeral home upstairs parlor, Cody's living quarters. When Cody brought out that copy of the certificate of death, he told me that it just fell out of nowhere. I didn't comprehend it at the time, but it really hit me when I retold the story to my dad. What did you say, a million to one or something? A million to one, ten million to one. Yeah. You know, I don't know how many uh, death certificates are up there, how many people that that, that funeral home has handled in its existence, but it's tens of thousands because I know that uh, they handle about three to 400 deaths a year, sometime a little bit more than that. So you can multiply. They, I think John High went in business about 1930, if I'm not mistaken. And so it's, it's, not uh, 2020 now, so it's been in in existence now for 90 years. You multiply that times 400, you have 36,000 death yeah. certificates handled there. If if the average is 400 a year, yeah. so you're looking at time and chance of that just happening while you're there is astronomical. It was also very surprising at the time that the mortician, John High, didn't list the cause of death on his copy, but listed the cost of the funeral, mainly because that man was the originator of the story behind Slim's death. At the time, that certificate really seemed like a clue John High had left for me to uncover, especially with everything that had happened there. However, I've since reviewed other certificate of death records from High's funeral home, and it is to my best knowledge that John High used all of his copies as record keepers or ledgers. John High wrote the cost of the funeral on other death certificates. So while I was wrong in thinking that it was a secret clue just for me, it is a discovery at that time that I thought was a big excitement for the case. Anne asks, does Brand think it was the sheriff who killed his great-grandfather? <laughs> well, uh, I'm not even sure if I was ready for this question. This is what the stories from my granny and my dad would potentially lead you to believe, but I think it goes a lot higher than just a local sheriff. Of course, it might have been the sheriff, but as of right now, I don't believe it was. My investigation is leading me to someone much higher on the ladder than a local sheriff. And let's just say, I'll leave it at that. Take a minute to listen to a word from our sponsors. Hey, podcast listeners. Are you obsessed with true crime? If you're like us, you can't get enough. Hi, I'm Jessica, and together with my husband, Bryce, we created a little podcast by the name of What Happens in the Woods. We're just your average couple living normal lives, who felt the need to share our love for true crime and sensational cases with the world. We talk about crime stories that take place in the Pacific Northwest, and we want nothing more than to share them with you. 
Come join us every first and third Friday of the month as we take a deep look into the dark and twisted stories of the Pacific Northwest here at What Happens in the Woods. Episodes are available for download on any listening platform or on our website, www.whathappensinthewoods.com. It isn't for the faint of heart, but we promise it'll be worth it. Now back to the Moonshine Murder and Mayhem podcast. Once again, listeners, thank you so much for all your support and your ratings and reviews and sharing. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Moonshine Murder and Mayhem podcast. If you have any information, please contact us at moonshinemurderandmayhem at gmail.com or message us on the Facebook group.